My name is Greg Jackson. I'm a PhD holding historian, a professor, and the creator of History That Doesn't Suck, a podcast that makes legit, seriously researched American history come to life through entertaining stories. Join me for a chronological telling of the United States story, from the revolution to fractious civil war, tenacious inventors, brave reformers, and more. With more than 100 episodes, you can already binge listen your way from 1776 to the early 20th century. Listen to History That Doesn't Suck on Spotify. Hello, and welcome to a History of Egypt podcast mini-episode, Banquet Festivities. This is part 5 in our 12-month account of the Egyptian religious year, its festivals, its events, and its gods. Parts 1-4 to are available now, and can be found with titles varying on the name Festivities. Now then, on with the show. The fifth month of the Egyptian civil calendar was called Ta'abet. It began in December and was the start of a new season. From here, things were all about moving forward and raising up the gods and the crops. Ta'abet translates in English to the banquet offering. In later times it came to be called Tibi, but Ta'abet is what I'm going with. That was the conventional name during the New Kingdom, where our podcast narrative currently sits. The month of Ta'abet was the first month in the Egyptian growing season. The season of Aket was now over, having lasted four months. With the new month, the season of Peret had begun. Peret, or coming forth, was the time when farmers were back in the fields and hard at work, cultivating the grains and cereals that would be their primary harvest. Emmer wheat and barley, the staple of the Egyptian diet, were now growing strong. Since it was these grains, manufactured into bread and beer, that were the base of Egyptian religious offerings, the first month of growing came to be associated with the offerings themselves. So, Ta'abet, the banquet offering. The month itself was relatively quiet in the scheme of major festivals. But there were a few interesting beings among the gods of this month. The first festival of the month was called the Festival of Neheb Ka'u. It was dedicated to a god called Neheb Ka'u, or Neheb Ka'u, whose name translates as the one who unites the spirits. I haven't introduced Neheb Ka'u before, so let's get to know him briefly. Neheb Kau was a powerful god of august ancestry and great authority on earth. He was also a bit strange. And I mean he was strange even by Egyptian standards. He appeared traditionally as a snake, a serpent. But, depending on the artwork in question, he could either appear as a male human with a snake's head, which is totally normal for Egypt, or, more strangely, as a kind of serpent-man hybrid. Neheb Kao sometimes appeared as an actual snake, but in this form he also had a pair of human arms and human legs attached to his snake body. The result is quite amusing. You'll get this pair of thick human legs with a coiled serpent perched on top of the hips, and then a pair of stick-figure arms sticking out of the snake's chest. 
Either Neheb Kau was the product of some deranged mad scientist, or his role in the world of the gods was a very curious one indeed. As always, you can see images at the website, link in the episode description. Neheb Kau was a powerful god of the earth and of the underworld. He would appear in funerary contexts as a god who spoke on behalf of the dead. As far back as the Old Kingdom pyramid texts, kings would ask Neheb Kau to, quote, raise up the king's good name to the council of the gods. Sometimes, the kings would associate themselves directly with Neheb Kau. So we hear about how King Pepi is, quote, Neheb Kau of numerous coils, or how Merenre is a serpent of numerous coils. In the New Kingdom Books of the Dead, the soul of the deceased would meet Neheb Kau in the underworld. Now they were warned about him, with instructions reminding the dead that Neheb Kau could not be harmed by water, by fire, or even by magic. He was basically invulnerable. Truly, he was a powerful being. At some point in the ancient past, Neheb Kau had increased his own might beyond that of an ordinary god. He did this when he swallowed seven cobras whole. These cobras, symbols of protection and the might of the pharaoh, gave Neheb Kau unbelievable strength and might. So when you came across him, it was best to play along. The actual feast of Neheb Kau was all about the agriculture which might seem strange given he's an underworld deity, but it makes sense when you consider Neheb Kau's family. Neheb Kau was the son of a god named Jeb. Jeb, the earth god, was one of the most ancient and primeval deities, a son of Atum Re, older even than Osiris or Isis, so kind of a big deal. On top of that, Neheb Kau's mother may have been the goddess Ren-En-Yunet, the goddess of the crops and a divine nurse. She was also a serpent god, and her role in the cosmos is kind of the feminine equivalent to that of Neheb Kau. So on both sides of his family, Neheb Kau was linked with the earth and with the crops. As a favoured son of Jeb and Ren and Nunit, maybe the god was the one the Egyptians turned to when the planting season began. You can sort of imagine the farmers going out into the fields for the first time, anxious about the snakes that might be hiding in the bushes, or pursuing insects in the fertile soil. In this kind of situation, it makes sense to pray to Neheb Kau for some kind of protection. So, on the first day of the month of Ta'abet, the Egyptians celebrated the god Neheb Kau. The serpent god was raised up as a great protector and guardian, for farmers, for gods, and for the blessed dead. It was an auspicious start to the month, Every good worshipper was now under the snake god's protection. In the previous month, Koyak, the Egyptians had celebrated a festival called the Sailing of Hathor. This was a festival where the statue of the goddess Hathor was taken out of her shrine, carried through the streets, and brought to visit the gods of other temples. It was a grand affair, a public favourite. Well, in the month of Ta'abet, the Egyptians did it again, four more times. Over the course of days 20, 29 and 30, 
the Egyptians celebrated the sailing festivals of four more goddesses. These were, in order, Wadjet, Bastet, Shesmetet, and Mut. Now Bastet, as you may know, is the cat goddess, and she's a huge deal. So big, in fact, that I want to save her for her own episode. Likewise, Shesmetet, who is an alternative form of Bastet. Bastet by another name. So let's just focus on Wadjet and Mut. Wadjet, the cobra, was a goddess of the Nile Delta. She was one of the Nebeti, the two ladies, who were referenced in the titles of a reigning pharaoh. Wadjet, the noble lady of the north, and Nekbet, the noble lady of the south, were the great protectors of the king. Wadjet, a snake, lived in the Nile Delta, amid the verdant greenery and growth of the waterways. Like all serpent gods, she was both a protector and a destroyer. Naturally, the Egyptians were very interested in gaining her favour. The sailing of Wadjet probably took place in the Nile Delta, mostly, although it is also a good bet that the king would have celebrated it. After all, Wadjet was a royal symbol. Sitting atop the king's crown, she was said to spit fire at his enemies and to destroy them utterly. Worshipping her was good for your health. Now, Moot. Moot is an interesting lady. She was kind of the second wife of the great god Amun. She had displaced his original wife and become queen of the gods alongside Amun himself. Wait, what? Yeah, Mut was a second wife to the lord of Thebes, the king of the gods. Now, Amun was technically one of the oldest deities, one of the primeval gods who lived even before Atumre, the creator. Back then, Amun had been part of the eight gods and goddesses who existed as elemental forces of the chaotic universe. He, like all the males of the eight, had been paired with a female counterpart, a goddess whose name was almost exactly the same as his, but with a slight alteration. Amun's first wife was called Amunet. Now, somewhere along the line, Amunet disappeared into the ether. In her place, the Egyptians lifted up Mut to be the wife of Amun in Thebes. Mut, a previously minor goddess, became queen of the gods and her rule over the Theban region became supreme. Mut was one of the three great deities who lived at Karnak Temple. Mut, her husband Amun, and their son Khonsu shared the secret precinct of Karnak. Each had their own temple or sanctuary, and each received daily offerings and worship. Together, they were what we call the Theban Triad. The sailing of Mut was like the sailing of Hathor. It was a celebration of a maternal, matriarchal goddess. It probably involved her visiting the temples of her male associates, with perhaps a divine marriage ceremony thrown in for her and Amun. People, particularly of the elite class, would have come out to see Moot and to gain her favour. The king, in particular, would have been interested in Moot's blessing. All of these sailings in the month of Tar-Abet share one feature in particular, they are all dedicated to goddesses, and they are all associated in some way with either snakes or cats. Worship of Wajet, like Neheb Kau, was worship of a serpent god. Worship of Bastet and Shesmetet was dedicated to cats. Funnily enough, worship of Mut was feline as well. You see, Mut sometimes took the form of a lioness, making her a vague relation of the great lioness Sakmet. 
So the month overall was one of cats and snakes, which sounds like some kind of excellent board game. I think breaking down the symbolism very simply, the month of Ta'abet seems to have been one dominated by concerns for health and safety. As farmers were going back out into the fields, they were entering the wild and natural world once again. This was a world where snakes could strike at unprotected ankles, and so the worship of Naheb Kao and Wajet, serpents of great power, sought to gain their favour and protection from all the creepy crawlies that threatened the average worker. The cats, meanwhile, were related to this in some strange religious symbolism. Cats, particularly lions, were associated with the power of the sun god Ray. Sometimes they were called the Great Cat of Ray, and they were shown destroying one of the most malevolent snake gods, the destroyer Apophis. So snakes and cats were intertwined, so to speak. They were locked in a struggle for dominance, one with powerful ramifications for the order of the natural world. So I suppose you could say that Ta'abet, the fifth month, was the month of snakes and cats. Beginning with the festival of Neheb Kao on day one, the sailings of Wajet, Bastet, Shesmetet, and Mut on days 20, 29, and 30, Egyptians of different regions each had a festival to celebrate in association with one of these animals. For the farmers, this was a most important time of year. So, now the planting season, Peret, has begun. For this month and three more, it's all about the growing. We're done with death for now. It's time to celebrate new life. Next month, the farming continues. Some of the crops, like vegetables, are beginning to produce already, and it's time to begin the first round of gathering. To do that, we're going to need some baskets. So, join me next month for some wicker work and farming, as the Egyptians begin the month called The One of the Basket. History isn't black and white, yet too often it's presented as such. Grey History, the French Revolution is a long-form history podcast dedicated to exploring the ambiguities and nuances of the past. From a revolution of hope and liberty to the infamous reign of terror, you can't understand the modern world without understanding the French Revolution. So search for the French Revolution today.